Morning, gentlemen. You know, uh, when, when uh, Dan Whipple tells you you've been singing good, you've been singing good. I guess maybe he was comparing it to something in the past. Maybe we weren't singing so well. I thought we were doing right there. But as uh, you probably were thinking, your mind was... A lot of folks tell me in church, you know, when we have a real good Sunday, when people are singing, they say, well, Pastor, if you'd pick some hymns we know, we'd always sing good. Always like to pick those bonehead hymns that nobody knows, just to keep everybody awake and, and, and a little ticked off, you know. Guys, we are coming into the part of Revelation that just gets really sizzling excited and uh, ought to encourage every one of us. And uh, we're in Revelation 19. The first part of that, we had three chapters left, well, four, uh, after this, uh, four chapters starting today, three and a half after today. But uh, we have seen the, the condemnation and the future destruction of Babylon, which represents all the world order and the worldliness that is in this age. And God is going to judge it. We've seen that she's coming down. You better not go down with her. You must come out of Babylon, as the Bible says. Now, how do you do that? Well, you don't just come out of the physical world, but you come out of its mindset, its worldview, its way of doing things, and you come into Christ, and you take Christ into this world, into your working place, your neighborhood, your family, your marriage, all your relationships, into your church. And so you're His representative, ready to be martyred if you have to be. But you've come out of this world and seeking its pleasures and its comforts, and its protections, and you're seeking the pleasures of Christ and the protection of Christ, and you take Him into the world with you wherever you go. That's the, that's the model for Christian living. We belong to another place, and yet we're living as aliens here. Well, one day, our time here is going to be over. Certainly when we die, it's going to be over. When Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be over. This is, all, this is already condemned turf. We're living our lives on condemned turf. And one day God is going to come and physically uh, execute His judgments and He's going to take us into the new heavens and the new earth where we are citizens and where it is made for us, where we are going to be completely changed from the inside out and where our environment is going to be changed so that we're living perfectly consistently with our environment. We'll no longer have this inner battle going on, these severe temptations and these failures that we face. And this ought to encourage us. It ought to lift up our hearts. If you're... If you're a melancholy sort of Eeyore sort of person, uh, this ought to get you over the hump this morning. And if you're a, a sanguine person who just never seems to have a problem when you look at the destruction of Babylon, that ought to wake you up this morning. So no matter what your personality type, you get a wake-up call when you look at the book of Revelation. Well, let's look at chapter 19. And looking back at verse 20 in chapter 18, you remember the voice from heaven that says, To all the church everywhere, rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. So we've been given the commandment in heaven to lift up our hearts and rejoice, even in the midst of great trials and suffering and difficulty in this life. Now, when we come to 19, we're going to see that the church in heaven, the church throughout, responds to this great call. We are indeed going to rejoice. Let's look at it, 19 verse 1 through verse 10. After this... I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude of heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries 
He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures, remember them? Fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he, and he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Wow. The wedding has come. For any of you who might be in the same shoes that, as Allison and I are with a wedding coming up in June, that's scary. <laughs> but that's not about a wedding you're supposed to arrange or have anything to do with. It's a, God, a wedding that God is going to arrange for us, and it is coming. We're going to see the significance of this as we look ahead. Now, we've seen that in answer to Revelation 18.20, heaven rings out four hallelujahs. Look at these hallelujahs with me. You have them in verse 1, hallelujah. Verse 3, hallelujah. Verse 4, amen, hallelujah. And verse 6, hallelujah. So obviously, hallelujah is an operative word here. Now, in order to understand where this word comes from, and, and by the way, this is, these are the only places in your New Testament where you get the word hallelujah. These four hallelujahs in Revelation 19. seems like such a common word because we're saying it all the time. Hallelujah. You know, as they say on TV, I'm trying to get that down. Uh, uh, but we say it all the time, but it's, a, it's not that common a word in the New Testament. You only get in Revelation, you only get it right here. Now, where does it come from? Well, take your Bible. You got, if you've got the NIV, you still won't find it. In fact, in your NIV, the word hallelujah is not to be found. They should be found, though. If you look in Psalm, uh, let's look at Psalm 111. And uh, these are called the great Hallels. You know, when, when uh, they would uh, celebrate Passover, we are, we're told when Jesus finished the Passover meal with his disciples, they went out singing a hymn. It's almost for certain they went out singing one of the great Hallels. Hallel means praise. Yah means Jehovah. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Uh, so uh, in, verse, uh, in, in uh, Psalm 111, Verse 1 says, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 112 says, praise the Lord. That's hallelujah. 113 starts, praise the Lord. That's hallelujah. So on. And then if you'll turn over to 146. Psalm 146, the, the, the Psalms close with these hallelujahs. Look at 146. Praise the Lord. That's hallelujah. 147, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 148, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then look, you can see many hallels throughout 148. 
Praise Him from the heavens. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, luminaries. Praise Him, uh, the heavens. Praise Him. Praise the name of the Lord. These are all hallelujahs. 149, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And then 150, get, seems to gather up all these hallelujahs and just repeats it over and over and over again. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him. It's Hallel. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise Him. It's, it's like a great symphony that's coming to its conclusion. This tremendous, tremendous crescendo. Just Hallels and Hallelujahs resounding in Psalm 150. So the Psalms are, are full of Hallelujahs, at least the great Hallels are. And it's from there that John is getting this language and hearing it in heaven. Because the language of the Psalms does, in a sense, uh, remind us of the language in heaven. Now, you'll find about this praise or this hallelujah that if you look either in the Psalms or in Revelation, that what is happening is we are extolling the Lord, we are praising Him because we have observed certain things that He has done or we have observed certain revelations of His character. That's the reason that we say a hallelujah or praise is theology in reverse gear. So theology, coming from the Bible, is God revealing Himself. Theos, logos, theology is the study of God proper. So in theology, we study God. How do we study Him? He has to make Himself known. He makes Himself known in His creation, first of all. And so the whole purpose of science is to investigate creation so that we can discover more reasons to give Hallel's to the God of creation. That's called, the, that's called general revelation. That revelation is available to every creature on the face of the earth, whether they're Christians or not Christians. Then there's special revelation, that is, the revelation that came through the prophets that was for the people of God. And uh, it is of course, for us, encapsulated in the sacred scriptures. That special revelation, general revelation, tells us there is a God and that He's powerful. Special revelation tells us there's a God, He's powerful, and He forgives sins. And He sent His Son to die for your sins and to provide a way for you to heaven. You won't pick that up in general revelation. You pick it up in special revelation. You need both. But the human being is made to investigate general revelation to give glory to God out of the sciences. And the human being is made to listen to the voice of God to examine special revelation that we may give Him glory for what He's done in redemption as well as creation. And I mentioned this in our uh, Creation versus Evolution uh, series these past two Wednesday nights. And by the way, if you'd like to, I think there are CDs and tapes available for those. And we'll also have all the notes uh, on the website. You pick, pick it up on the website with all the notes as well as uh, getting notes from us somehow. But I think it's in the bookmark if you want it now. But we were talking about this on these Wednesday nights, about our investigating both the scientific realm and the theological realm, or, or let's say the biblical realm, so that we can praise God for all that He has done and said and all that He is. That's the reason that for the Christian, one of the keys to figuring out this area or any other scientific area is to be sure that you bring the two of them together. And what the Darwinian has done is to say that there's a realm of science over here and theology can have nothing to do with it. Of course, he has his own theological presuppositions, which is called a, a philosophical 
materialism. That's the Darwinian evolutionaries, uh, evolutionist uh, presuppositional framework. Uh, he won't usually admit that, but it's informing the way that he makes, draws his conclusions and, uh, and, and makes his presentation. He starts with uh, uh, an atheistic perspective and ends up with one. Well, surprise. Well, the Christian has presuppositions too. We, we start off with the idea there is a God and his word is true. We also say that, that, that the natural realm has revealed God. But unfortunately, there are some in the Christian area who are just as um, divisive with science and, and religion as is the Darwinian. And they want to say it's the Bible only. I'm not going to pay any attention to what science is telling me. But the Christian is made to discover God's truth and his revealed character in both the Bible and science. And that is, as we said on these past two Wednesday nights, that is the key that will enable us then to discover the truth of these things when we embrace both science and the Bible and bring them together. They're both from God. They're both infallible. The Bible's infallible and nature's infallible. Now, it's fallen, but it infallibly reveals God. Now, we're not saying that we infallibly interpret it. Either one, the Bible or science. But you can see that, that praise, our whole purpose for being, is returning to God what He has revealed to us. And if you're not studying science, if you're not studying the Bible, what do you have to offer to God? You haven't been studying theology. You haven't been studying the revelation of God's character and His works in either the natural realm or the redemptive realm. But the duty of the Christian is to search these things out. As the, psalm, as the proverbial writer says in, in Proverbs 25, I think, it is the glory of God to, to hide a matter. It is the glory of kings to search it out. So, indeed, there are many things hidden in this universe and in the Scriptures. It's a mine. Uh, it's a treasure uh, mine. It's a, and, it's to be, and all these treasures are to be mined out of it. And so we go searching because that leads us to praise. Jonathan Edwards, uh, 300 years ago, wrote a famous sermon entitled uh, Praise, the Chief Employment of Heaven. Uh, so many people remember Edwards for sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he was able certainly to preach about hell and the judgment of God as well. But his primary dominant theme was always on praise and on heaven. And uh, that... That really says it all, doesn't it? Our chief employment in heaven is going to be to praise Him. And we begin now with a foretaste of what we can know about God right now. So what you find then, hallelujahs break out when men are studying God and they get excited about who He is. And that will be the main task we have in heaven. That is the reason that for us to be competent worshipers, we have to read our Bibles. We have to pick up the prayer language that's given to us in the Scriptures and pick up the language of the Psalms and the rest of the book so that we can offer to God the praise which He deserves. So it is theology in reverse gear. And praise is the saint at his highest and his best. You say, gosh, that sounds boring. You know? No golf? You know? What about sex? You know? So we're just going to sit there and praise the Lord? That just shows how dull you are, you knucklehead. Uh, because we, we think that the things that we really love to do here, 
you know, are just the best things you can possibly find. I'm telling you what, you're like a little kid making mud pies, you know, and and the beach is looming before you with this beautiful white sand. And someone's trying to describe to you a holiday there, uh, as C.F. Lewis said, and no, you don't want to go to the holiday. You'd like your little mud pies in your little muddy street in the back uh, alley of your house. It's just a limited imagination. And that's the way most men are. We think that what you see is as good as it can get, and I'm going to grab for all that I can get. Wrong! It's mud pies. So what we're going to find is that we are at our best in praising, and <coughs> we're going to find that when we're praising God, that we are in intimate relationship with the most glorious being in the universe. And there could not be anything greater than this. So we're entering in to the summum bonum, the highest good that man was created for. And we are to learn now in our broken and fallen and redeemed state how to begin to cultivate this in our lives. So it is the saint at his best. And I want you to notice also when, when we look at these hallels and these hallelujahs, there's several things about a hallelujah you need to know. First of all, it's loud. Dan said our singing was great. Okay, pretty good. Look, when we get taken in with God and His love for us and the awesome power of His judgments, and we really fear Him, there's going to be singing in the church again. And we won't have to have directors up there, okay, now everybody, come on, let's get it going this morning. Which uh, some of you may have at your church. Uh, you know, some directors up there, you know, really trying to fire up the congregation. You won't need anybody to do that. Uh, you'll have the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be seeing Him. And there are going to be loud hallelujahs singing at the top of people's lungs. Why? Because they're excited. And all you have to do is just listen on the TV to the Final Four. Some of you probably went to the Final Four. It was loud. And that's a basketball game in a big football stadium. You get it in a Rupp Arena or somewhere like that, you know, and it gets, you know, a FedEx Forum. It's loud. Because people get excited, especially toward the end of the game. Guess what? You're toward the end of the game. And you're going to win. And your coach is unbelievable. <laughs> so there's reason to get loud. So hallelujahs are loud when people understand who Christ is. So, gentlemen, let me just say, you go to your church, you kind of mumble through the words of your hymn book, you have no particular interest in learning how to sing it, and all you're going to do is complain about the preacher who picked another bonehead hymn, and you're not going to learn... You're not going to learn. I'm not going to learn any new songs. The only songs I'm going to sing are the great old hymns. Of course, great old hymns means the ones that my grandmother taught me when I was eight years old. That's a great old hymn. That's the reason we're trying to teach truly great hymns to our eight-year, our eight-year-olds, so that when you're your age, they'll be saying that's a great old hymn, and they happen to have been right. So, but we just, you know, we just have our own. We think singing is for my personal enjoyment. If I like the tune, good. If I like the words, okay. Most of us don't even notice the words. Gentlemen, we're entering into the presence of God. The worship services on this earth are to connect us to the worship services in heaven. We are organically related to Christ. And guess what? We are related to those who have gone before us, who are in heaven with the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim singing praises to God. And they're loud! How about you? So often we're not. Get with it. This is what Hallel is all about. It's very loud. I want you to notice also, as you look at this, it's, it involves verbal expression. <laughs> I know. So it's, a, it's a men's breakfast. 
We're talking about expression. I know. Uh, and this is maybe stretching it a little bit. You know, I don't express my emotions very well. I know. But she really wants me to talk about what's on my mind, but I just don't know how to do that. I know. Uh, <clears throat> look, uh, there's some really great things about women, and there's some great things about men. There are some pretty negative things about women, and there are pretty some negative things about men. And we all have something we have to get over. But when it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to have to get expressive. You're going to have to tell Him what you feel. You're going to tell Him what you think, especially when you're talking about Him. You're going to learn to express your love for Him. And this is difficult. I don't know why it is that guys don't want to admit that we even are supposed to have emotions, but you've got them. And they're based on ideas and realities that elicit from us deep affection. And when, when we've got guys over in Iraq laying down their lives for their country and especially for the guy right next to them, that's a deep affection and emotion. We may express it in an even violent or warlike manner, but that's a deep affection. Some of you have known that on the battlefield. Well, you just take that affection and multiply it by ten, and then you've got the affection we're supposed to be giving Jesus Christ. It demands absolute loyalty, and we can talk about it. If you can stand up and say you love your country, which I bet every single one of us can do, and if you've been in the military and you can say you love the guy you're fighting next to and you can get that out, I believe you can say something about Jesus Christ too. We need to learn to do it. We need to learn to do it according to the written liturgies that are in the hymn books and the prayer books, and we need to learn to do it out of our own free expression, uh, even without somebody else writing the words for us. How would it be, you know, if I go on a date, you know, and I'm thinking about, I'd like to marry this woman. I say, I'd like to say a few things. Just a minute, let me pull it. I got some notes right here. Uh, dear, I think you're beautiful. Um, uh, I would like to hold your hand. Uh, that's not very cool, is it? Uh, how cool is it, you know, if if you can't even talk to the Lord? Some of you I know have a hard time praying. Hey, look, it's a love relationship. And probably you had a hard time talking to your wife, too, about intimate things. I don't know. Uh, most of us did, trying to figure out how to do this thing, you know, cross the gender gap. But here we're crossing the creature gap. But we know that the Lord loves praise. He loves it. He loves it. And uh, we who are men have to learn that our women like to hear things in their ear. If you're dating a woman, you know, more important than what you do or even how you look is what you say and you put into that ear. And women are made in the image of God, and they tell us something about God, just like men are created in the image of God and tell something about Him too. He made man, male and female, He made them. And women are displaying for us that God likes to hear. And so He loves to hear our thoughts. So it is loud and it is verbal and it is active. Hallelujahs are active. Look at heaven. It's rising up. It's on the move. Those of you who may be in the Pentecostal tradition, you don't have a whole lot of trouble with that. You get out and dance and bounce around, stand on the chairs, you know, hang from the chandeliers, all kinds of things. And those of you who are Episcopalians, well, I take that back. You do walk forward to get communion. Okay, there you go. There, there we got a little movement out of you. And you do kneel with your kneelers. So, okay, you got some movement going there, all right? It's a little stiff, but for you, that's pretty good. Presbyterians are worse. Baptists are worse. We sit on our butt. That's what we do for activity. And we dare the preacher to entertain us. And that's our idea of a worship service. 
Gentlemen, it's not about what's being performed for you. It's about your performance before Him. And so we're the ones who are to be active. And if you happen to be in a dull Presbyterian or Methodist or Baptist church, and there's not a whole lot going on there, then when you get a chance to stand up, then stand up with intentionality and sing out with purpose and give it all that you got because Hallel's are very, very active. They're loud, they're verbal, they're active, and then they're careful. And you'll see here that in these hallelujahs that are coming up, and we're going to frame this whole text for those four hallelujahs, they're very careful hallelujahs. They are hallelujahs with a purpose. And we don't just say hallelujah, 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 and have no idea what we're hallelujahing about. we got some reasons to hallelujah. And they're very carefully stated. That's the reason that we study the Bible, so that we are praising God accurately. And He gives us in the Bible the things about Himself that He wants us to know to encourage us and to inform the way that we worship Him. He happens to have told us what He wants to hear from us about that we're thankful for. So the hallelujahs are very careful. Let's look at the first one. Verses 1 and 2. We praise God for His judgments. The Bible reveals God as a judge because that is who He is. And He is to be praised as a judge. The whole earth is going to praise Him upon His return, as we saw last time. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The earth receives her King. And that's from Psalm 96, where we're told that He comes to judge the earth. So the whole earth rises up to praise God as a judge. Why? His judgments are awesome. Salvation, glory, power. What kind of names can you give to God? What kind of descriptors can you ascribe to Him? Salvation and glory and power. Why? Because His judgments are awesome. These attributes belong to our God. He owns these attributes. He is salvation. He is glory. He is power at its highest essence. So His judgments are awesome. His judgments are true and just in verse 2. He has condemned. It says in verse 2, for true and just are His judgments. Why? He has condemned the great prostitute. And what does this tell us about Him? That He judges sin. And He judges unredeemed sinners. No one is getting by with anything. He's an awesome judge. He is omnipotent and omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. And His judgments are perfect. So if you were involved in a business deal and somebody, some Shylock cheated you out of something, don't worry about it. It's all coming back in spades. You'll get it. Why? Well, he judges Babylon because she corrupted the earth. How did she corrupt it? She corrupted the earth with or by her adulteries. She was made in the image of God too. And she chose to be a prostitute. And to lead other people astray. And to corrupt all of the society. And of course, this, this idea of sexuality is here both a sign of... Adultery is a sign or a symbol of the apostasy on the earth. It's like a prostitute. And she just wants your money and she wants to corrupt you. And it's exactly what the sexualized society is doing. This sex as a symbol is a great 
illustration here because that's exactly what it's doing to society right now. It's interesting to me in reading uh, the closing of the American mind by Harold Bloom about 20 years ago. Harold Bloom is a, he's not a Christian, but uh, he's a, he was a philosopher at the University of Chicago. And Bloom talks about how the, the American mind, which is boasting that it's so open, has actually closed and is not open to real truth because we don't take absolutes anymore. So we've actually closed our minds. And he said, he quotes G.K. Chesterton, who said that the purpose of an open mind like an open mouth, is to shut down on something solid. But he says, Bloom says, we don't have an open mind. We've already shut it down before the food comes. We don't want to know about any absolute truth. And he speculates about some of the contributors to this. And, of course, you know, we have the whole postmodern thing. But he says that our sexualized society has a lot to do with it, too. He said that it was fascinating to him that, uh, he said, more fascinating to me than the fact that co-eds would shack up together in their first year, and shack up for four years. He said, more amazing than that was that when they parted, after four years, they parted with a handshake. He said, there's no romance. That He said, actually, the licentious sexual behavior on college campuses has flattened the romantic interests of men and women. And he said, he said as a professor, I've noticed in the classroom, he said, you could just watch it through the 60s as kind of the sexual revolution took hold on the college campus. He said, there was much more of a lackadaisical attitude in the classroom. There was not this intense interest, intellectual curiosity. There was not the questioning that was coming. There was not a passion for social reform after that. He said, it just flattened everything, took the romance out of life itself. Isn't, it the, isn't that the irony? With sexual... A license has gone up. Romance has gone down. It's it's such a picture of the foolishness of disobeying God is that you're really going to lose the very thing you think you're going to get. You think you're going to get intimacy, and you get just the opposite. And Well, it makes sense that you get just the opposite because sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage is not love. It's selfishness. It's intensely selfish. And so what you're doing is taking something that doesn't belong to you over and over again. You are manipulating that other person. You say, it may say, well, she likes it. Yeah, okay, she's manipulating you too. So a wonderful relationship you have. It's called mutual manipulation. That's a long way from Christian love. Christian love gives to the other person. It serves the other person. It edifies the other person and builds them up to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the highest friendship you can have with a person. There's real intimacy. If you're trying to build another person up, they want you into their lives. If you, and I always tell single men in high school, if you want to have intimate relationships with girls before marriage, here's how you do it. You follow this rubric. You serve them. You love them. You build them up. And then you'll have all the good friendships with girls you'd like to have. You start getting sexually active, taking advantage of them, taking things that don't belong to you, stealing from them, as it were, then how do you expect to have a good friendship? How can you have a friendship with someone who steals from you regularly? In our consciences, that's, not, that's what we know we're doing. In this sexualized society, outside of marriage, whether it's extramarital or it's premarital, it's selfishness. It's not love. And so this is what the prostitute does. She puts herself forward as the way to happiness, the way to intimacy, the way to friendship. And she's just ripping you off. And God says, there's going to be an end to that. 
And there's going to be a judgment upon that. And that's the reason we're told to get out of there. Not only for our own personal welfare, which certainly happens, but for our own uh, survival at the end. She corrupts the earth with her adulteries. And it is, it is sad to see how many men are being corrupted on the college campus today. There's this book that's out called I Am Charlotte. Maybe some of you have read it. And it's, you know, fictional. But those who have read it and also know about the sexual behavior on the college campus are saying it's absolutely right on target. And people aren't talking about it because it's so embarrassing. Parents of college-age students don't even want to read it and admit it. Uh, they don't want to know that it's true because they don't want to think about the fact that that's where their kids are going to school, at a place like that, where it's absolutely rampant, where the standards have completely come down. And the universities, and I say this some of you, knowing some of you here are in the universities and colleges, universities happen to be one of the chief institutions that are spewing out the adulterers of this world over and over again, day after day. And they have a philosophy that supports it. Because once you leave the idea that there is a God, that He has standards, that He builds a relationship with us, that He wants us to model that relationship with Him in our human relationships with each other, you do not have a foundation to have a happy sexual life and a happy romantic life. And so we're trying rampantly uh, to find it some other way. It's, it's going on on our college campuses especially. So if you have a college student, it might be a good thing for you to do to have a little conversation. And the sooner the better. And ask your student. Ask them a question. Tell me how you're handling this. I know what's going on. Just tell me how you handle it. I mean, one, one of you told me. No, it wasn't one of you. It was in another city. I think. Parents said to me that their daughter told them she was propositioned every day almost that she was in college. And no was not something you initially, you know, occasionally had to come up with. It was an everyday word. And after a while, you get tired of being weird. After a while, you get tired of being seen as prudish. After a while, you just get worn down. If you have a daughter in college, you might have a little conversation about how you handle this, honey, because I know this is going on. And do you realize that it's a fool, foolish trick that's being played on you by Babylon herself who wants to corrupt you and destroy you? The devil came to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And it's exactly what he's trying to do with our young adults here and across the country. You better have a little conversation. If you're a grandparent and you've got kids in college, I'll tell you what, I think it would be a good idea to have a little conversation about how they're handling it in the high school or, or in the college because it is absolutely rampant and totally destructive. Also, Babylon killed the saints. You see it here. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. If you're tempted to be vengeful, vindictive, if what you want is revenge against the one who ripped you off, you're very foolish. If you're a Christian, <laughs> believe me, this is going to be taken care of. You have nothing to worry about. Your big brother has got this full thing in view, and he's real awesome. His name is Jesus, and he's going to avenge on this world all the rip-off artists who have ever hurt you. You don't have to worry about it. I'm not saying don't take them to court. I'm not saying don't sue their pants off if you need to. I'm not saying don't try to get your money back because we believe in justice in this life because God is just when justice is available we exercise it. We should exercise it. The civil courts are there for a reason. 
If it's between two Christians, you come into the church to get reconciliation and seek your justice within the church. Paul says it's an absolute embarrassment. It's a shame that you have to go to civil courts to get justice in the church. Can't you folks who are going to be judging angels one day judge one another and make adjudication? And and can't you do litigation? Can't you decide among yourselves? The church has completely abandoned that ministry and just sends them to court. Paul says it's an absolute shame because among brothers we ought to be able to solve these things. But if it's between you and a non-brother, of course you use the civil courts. I'm not saying that you just uh, roll over. However, the courts will never bring you full justice. The issues of evidence itself requires that sometimes something that really happened can't be proven. And you got ripped off. So you're not going to get justice in this world. It's impossible. Don't worry. He is going to avenge on her the blood of all the saints. Everything that's been done against you will have perfect uh, vengeance. You say, well, doesn't that make me vengeful? No. That's the secret not to be vengeful is to understand that God one day is going to take care of it all. We have in our culture almost completely forgotten the idea of retributive justice, which comes from the word retribution. Retributive justice. But in the English tradition and the Christian American tradition, if you go back, it was a common understanding that when we exercise justice in this world, the purpose of penal sanctions in this world is not just to restore the prisoner. Often we'll hear the argument, uh, let's, let's assume it's on the death penalty, which is the worst case scenario. You'll hear an argument for the death penalty. Well, how does that restore the prisoner? He's dead. Well, if there is an argument for the death penalty or if there is an argument for life imprisonment or anything else that, you know, that's very severe, it's not just to teach the poor criminal a lesson. That's part of it. It's not just to protect society. That's part of it. But ultimately, it is to display the character of God in our state. And it is to display His retribution against all sin. Now, fathers who have little children who are under your discipline, there's a sense in which you discipline or correct your children so that they won't do that again and hurt themselves. And probably, most commonly, that's what's on our minds. Or, we know that our house has to be kept in order. And if this kid keeps functioning this way, our whole house is going to cave in. So we take up the responsibility to correct one party in order to spare the whole household. And sometimes that's on our minds. But Father, let me tell you something. Your chief purpose is to glorify God. And you bear the name Father. That's awesome. Where do you think you got that name? Why do you think you have that name? Why do you think you have that role? Because... You are standing in the place of God. You know, it used to be, I can still remember this language, I'm old enough, that when we went to college, the college saw itself in loco parentis. Or, by my time, they were discussing whether they should be in loco parentis, which means in the place of the parent. Of course, now, that's a joke. They're not in the place of the parent, they're against the parent. 
But it used to be that an institution that took people under 21 years of age would ask them, you know, they would see themselves in loco parentis. Well, let me tell you something, fathers. You're in loco dei, in a place of God. And you bear that name. It's a precious name. The number one reason why there is justice in your house is to display the justice of God. And His justice is always mixed with mercy. And your role is not to wreak out vengeance because that kid had the temerity to rise up against you and overthrow your personal pride. That's what too many fathers do. It leads to anger that is unwarranted and that is not to glorify God. It's to get retribution for yourself. But a father who is operating as God would have him understands that he is simply a man under orders and he is displaying the order and the justice of the living God. You're his vicegerate. You're his commissioner. You're standing in his place. That's an awesome role to take. So we've lost this idea of retributive justice, but it comes right back to us right here. He will avenge on her the blood of all the saints. You are his chosen people. If you're in Christ, someone touches you, they have touched the very apple of God's eye. And those of you who brag about your little grandchildren, these little cute little two and three year old, I mean, you got all your pictures coming out of all your pockets, you know, it's just disgusting, you know? You think you just turned to butter. What happens if someone touches one of those grandchildren? You fathers who have a little four year old girl, what happens if somebody tries to touch that little girl? Everything in you comes out. You're ready to die, to kill somebody, to protect these little ones. If that's the way you feel, I'm just telling you, where do you think you've got that feeling of protection? Where do you think you've got this affection for little ones? I'll tell you where you got it, fathers. You got it from the father. It's exactly the way he feels. And these people that are ripping you off and doing you in and oppressing you, they're touching something precious to him. And God gets angry about that. Because when they touch you, they're touching the ones who bear his name. And he considers you precious in his sight. So Babylon has killed the saints. His judgments are true and just. And you can wait on him. Secondly, we see in verse 3 another alleluia. Again, they shouted, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Well, that looks real merciful, doesn't it? We always praise God for His judgments. The smoke always goes up. In Isaiah 34, 14, uh, you get the reference for this where God says through Isaiah, uh, thorns, uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, a little earlier, 34, 10. Uh, let's go back to 34.9. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night and day. Its smoke will rise forever from generation to generation. It will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again and so on. So that should be 34.10. What you get there is Edom is being judged by God. Edom, you know, is the neighboring nation to Israel. Because of the way she treated Israel. And she's going to be left absolutely desolate. Because you don't mistreat Israel. And who is Israel? It's the believers in Christ. You don't touch them or you'll be desolate. So just wait. And it will be taken care of. We always praise God for His judgments. When we're in heaven, 
exercising our chief employment, which would be to praise Him, we will forever praise Him for His true and just judgments. And this smoke here rising before us forever is simply a reminder that it will always be before us that He loves us, He takes up our cause, He protects us and defends us, and He restores us to perfect felicity. Thirdly, verses 4 and 5, you get another hallelujah. It just simply says, Amen, hallelujah. The 24 elders and the four living creatures. Why? Well, we all, we all always praise God for His judgments. All 24 elders and four living creatures from the throne, they're all engaged in this. So everybody always praising God for His judgments. Why? Because we are His servants. We don't start with the question, hey, you know what I think, what would I like to do today? No, we start with the question, God, what do you want me to do today? And when you get to heaven, you, you're, His will shall be your delight. You will find that more than playing golf or having sex, you want to do what He wants to do. And that will be your recreation. It will refresh you and renew you. It will be the most exciting thing you can do is to do His will. I know that seems a long way off. It does to me too. Because I like to do what I like to do. But when I get there, the very thing I like to do will be the thing that He wants. When little kids ask me, will we have little doggies and kitties in heaven? Will I be able to play with my trucks? Here's what I tell them. Honey, when you get to heaven, you're going to do whatever you want to do. Now, when he gets to heaven, he's not going to want to play with his little truck. But he's not old enough to understand that right now. He's going to do whatever he wants to do all the time. And that's going to be wonderful. And so will you. You'll do whatever you want to do. Forever. And it will be exactly the right thing to do to be His servant. You will want to be His faithful servant doing what He wants. That's the reason we'll praise Him all the time. We fear Him. It's not just that when we get to heaven, we won't be saying, Lord, I know You're awesome. I know You're powerful. I want to fear You. And I'm having a hard time fearing You, God, which is, of course, so ridiculous. All we need is one stroke of lightning and we'll figure that one out. But we're sitting here like little idiots, little children who don't know who the boss is, trying to cultivate fear. How stupid do you have to be to try to cultivate fear when he is fearsome? That's the way we are. When you get to heaven, you won't have to cultivate it. <laughs> It'll all be there. You will be absolutely awestruck. And that's, that will be the very framework in which this joy of hallelujah will come forth. You know, when you, when you go to the Final Four or your alma mater, and you've got this tight game, and you've got 10 seconds left, and they're coming down the court one point behind, and the ball goes up in the air and the buzzer goes off, and then it goes through the net. No one has to say, you know, this will be an appropriate time to shout. Uh, I know you've been having a hard time with that. You, don't, you have a hard time expressing your emotions, but I just want to inform you that I think this is the moment. Yeah. Oh, yay! No. You're absolutely awestruck with that shot. There's a sense in which you're in fear of that shot. It's just, it's just amazing. You're stunned by it. And it was your team. <laughs> and you give a shout of hallelujah. Now, that's the way it's going to be. We'll be His servants. We'll be doing what we want to do as His servants. And we will, it'll be like this. It's going to be such a thrilling environment. We'll fear Him. And our earthly status makes this much difference, gentlemen. How much difference does it make whether you have 
$10 million in your bank account or $10,000 or $10? Makes that much difference. How much difference does it make whether you were a preacher or you helped in the kitchen? It makes about that much difference. How much difference does it make whether you, you have been a teacher for 25 years and a missionary to Africa or you've been faithfully just serving at home and doing your job? It makes that much difference. How much difference does it make what other people in this community think of you and whether you're recognized when you walk down the street or nobody has a blooming idea who you are? It makes that much difference. None. We spend most of our lives trying to do things that make no difference. We try to position ourselves in ways that make no difference. The difference is whether you know him or not and whether you're relishing what he's provided for you. We, in verse 6, 10, we, through 10, verse 6 and 10, we get another hallelujah. We will always praise God for his judgments and his grace. First of all, verse 6 and 7, our God reigns over us. We will rejoice and we will glorify God. We don't like to be ruled over right now. We like to be our own rulers. But when we get to heaven, we will see clearly what we're supposed to be cultivating right now. That we know we need a ruler and we especially would like to have a benevolent ruler. And we happen to have one. And when we get in heaven, we're going to see how great it is. And we're going to be rejoicing all the time because we have such a great king. Such a great ruler. And we're to be cultivating that now. Knowing that we have such a ruler. Secondly, our God not only rules over us, our God weds us. And you'll get in Isaiah 61.10. Let me see if I got that one right. Uh, this reference to a wedding. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So this is from Isaiah 61. This whole idea of wedding. The wedding of the Lamb has come. In the first century, when this was written, the wedding procedure went like this. Of course, the woman was pledged to the man by the father, you know, often in childhood. They get to a certain age, and they actually have a betrothal. That's where they're pledged to one another. It's similar to engagement, but our engagements can be broken without any moral or legal or ethical implication. It's sad, but it's not illegal. It used to be. I'm old enough to remember the old phrase, the breach of promise. You know, if a man pledged himself to another man's daughter and then he broke it off, you could be sued about 100 years ago. No more. Our engagements are social engagements. In those days, there was betrothal. You pledged one to the other. All that was lacking is living together. And they could decide to do that when the girl reached menses and when she was old enough to, to engage in physical union, then she would be given to the husband. Here's how it went. He would travel to her home and she would make herself ready and he would go with his wedding party to go get her. If he lived close enough by, then she would come back to his place. He would carry her in such a certain sense back to her place and have a big wedding feast and then after that, uh, the union would take place. So you had a long betrothal and then the wedding supper was the supper when the bride came in all of her beauty with her attendants to the man's home, and after he had paid the dowry to the, to the uh, girl's father. And that's what's happening here. Our God has wed us. He has betrothed himself to us. That's the status that we have right now. We're pledged to be the Lord's. He has come to us, to our home. He has paid the dowry. He has laid down his life to purchase us to be his bride. He has gone back to his house. 
And all we're waiting for is when we shall meet him with our attendants in the air. So you see the picture is there perfectly waiting for us to understand it. So he weds us. He will one day complete this thing and, as we say, consummate the marriage. Our God clothes us. This fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Protestants sometimes have a hard time with that. We think of our, of our clothing as being our clothing for justification, what Christ has done for us outside of us. But here, clearly, he seems to be saying that our clothing is his righteousness that is infused in us. It's our sanctification. Gentlemen, it makes a difference that you're living a holy life. You're going to wear that. Well, let's start dressing right now, getting your clothing ready. It is the righteous acts that God performs in us. In Romans 12, or Hebrews 12:14, without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. It's useless. It's, it's, it's a worthless faith. If you simply say, I believe, and there's nothing happening in your life, no changes taking place in your life, no affection from your heart, that's empty faith. God blesses us in verse 9. We are told the angel said, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. You have an invitation, and you're very blessed to have one. You have an invitation from the Lord to be His bride. And then lastly, our God demands pure worship. When John sees this angel, he falls down to worship. That tells you something, doesn't it? That we are so glorious in our glorified state that others will be tempted to worship us. And this being from heaven says, don't do that. Your worship belongs only to God. No matter how glorious we are in our resurrected bodies, we are not worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. And he says, after all, you have the testimony of Jesus. You have the story about Jesus. And if you have the story about Jesus, what you have is the prophecy. You're the prophets. You're the, the ones who are taken to heaven in, in glorious array because you are the ones who have the message that changes universes and turns lives inside out. You're the ones who are designated by God to be His spokesman in this world. You're the prophets of God. I'm just your fellow servant, He says. I'm a prophet. You're a prophet. Get up off your feet. Get up off your face. And give glory to God. You see how glorious heaven is going to be. I close with this. Uh, there's a Presbyterian pastor in the 19th century named James Henley Thornwell. He, uh, even as a 35-year-old, he was a moderator of General Assembly. He was a brilliant young pastor. And he, at one point in his life, actually pastored First Presbyterian in Columbia, South Carolina, where my predecessor, Dick DeWitt, is now pastoring. When he was pastor at First Presbyterian, Columbia, South Carolina, this is the middle of the 19th century, his young daughter uh, was engaged to be married. And the wedding date was set for a Sunday, which was typical in those days, Sunday afternoon. And uh, the week before she was to be wed, to her very fine young husband. She became very ill. So ill that they would have called off the wedding, except for the fact in those days, you put out the invitations way ahead of time, people start traveling, there's no way to communicate. They're already on their way a week before the wedding. So Dr. Thornwell, on one occasion, knelt 
that week by his daughter's bedside because she was in threat of losing her life. He prayed, Lord, please preserve my daughter and heal her that she may enjoy the pleasures of this wedding with her fine young fiancé. At that moment, his daughter, 18-year-old daughter, rallied enough strength to rise up and say, Dad, don't pray like that. If God were to take me home, I would then have my bridegroom forever and ever. So the great Presbyterian theologian got a very important lesson from his 18-year-old daughter. Well, it turns out that by the end of that week, she died. And all the wedding guests who thought they were coming for a wedding were actually coming for a funeral on Sunday afternoon. And on that Sunday, she was buried in her wedding gown. And on her tombstone to this day, you can go there and see it, it says this, as a bride, beautifully prepared for her husband. Right out of Revelation. Because this is the picture. You are the bride. You are the chosen one. You are the loved one. He has already betrothed himself to you. We're on rehearsal dinner night. The wedding's in the morning. It's not a time for tomfoolery. It's not a time for messing around. It's not a time to, to mess around with prostitutes or other women or other gods. It's a time to devote yourself and get ready for the big wedding tomorrow. And when you die, that is going to be your wedding. Or when Christ comes back. That is the view of one who understands and believes. Revelation 19, 1-10. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your glorious truth coming from Your glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has completely pledged Himself to us. And we eagerly long for that day when perfect judgment will be exercised and the fullness of Your grace will be experienced by us all who know You. May we live in light of our engagement throughout this day and every day until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.